today we get to interview someone that we really love around here. She's been around for a couple of years and just near to our heart. She, um, when I say, you know, what's a vocation that you think of that has a lot of passion in it? I think what comes to mind, like me and all of you, is accounting. And so uh, let's, let's, uh, let's invite Bethany Labaz up on stage and welcome her. Bethany, good to see you. Thanks for being here this morning with us. Now, I make a joke about that, but you really are passionate about accounting, and it's really great to hear how how that works in your life and integrates with your faith. Mm -hmm. Uh, Would you just tell us uh, what you're aspiring to now? Yeah, that was a very sarcastic joke, but for me, I'm actually serious. It is something I am passionate about. Um, I'm aspiring to be a forensic accountant, um, and so what that looks like is eventually being an expert witness to work with attorneys in white-collar crime. So give us an example, because forensic accounting seems like a hard thing to understand. Give us an example of what that might look like in the real world. So a case that I worked on this summer was a company hired us to investigate their CFO because he had accusations of stealing company money for his own vacations and uh, just really, really personal matters that is completely separate from work, but he used company money to do that. So we get hired to kind of identify those things that he stole and then to calculate how much damage was done to the company. So in, in this field, as you've been working in this, uh, what, what aspect of God's character do you see in, in forensic accounting? So one of my favorite aspects about God is that he is a God of justice. And in our brokenness, he will step alongside of us and pursue it with us. And for me, I always enter into chaos and brokenness in my work. Usually the company will go under in about a week if we don't help them and try to figure out what money was taken and try to get it back to them. So for me, I get to enter in and be there with them in their brokenness and kind of seek this justice for them. Um, So I definitely see it daily and can feel the um, power of what I'm doing in seeking justice for them. And that's great. Um, how much you get to help these companies. Uh, you, I said, what are you aspiring to, the first question, because you're not officially a forensic accountant yet. Um, you are in an internship right now. And would you just explain a little bit what you're doing now? Yeah, so the expert witness goal is very lofty and very far down the road. So right now I'm getting my master's in taxation at ASU. I'm a teacher's assistant at ASU for an undergrad class. And I'm sitting for my CPA. And I've also done six different internships. All right. So college student, she's done six internships. How many have you done? (laughs) Um, So a lot of times, though, interns sort of get a bad rap, you know, like uh, it's the the jerky guy who spills his water on purpose and says, intern, clean this up. That's the idea sometimes we have about interns. But but the reality is it's it's a real blessing and privilege to be in those positions. And would you share a little bit like how you feel about where God has put you as an intern now? Yeah, so at my work, sometimes the extent of what I do um, from 9 to 5 is whole punch papers and put them in a binder and put a label on the binder and put the binder away. Um, So it's easy to get bored and not really recognize the importance of that. Um, But for me, I honestly get excited to do it. Like accounting alone is kind of a boring thing to do, but it's exciting for me because I see so much of God in what I do and that it is important because if I didn't hole punch those papers, my boss wouldn't have a binder and he wouldn't be prepared for his client and the client would, you know, be a victim to his brokenness. So uh, I see the importance in the little things that I do and for that reason I have a passion 
And it's also just looking long-term at one day being a leader. Um, I think it's important to not have it handed to me, but to work towards it and start from like a humble beginning. So in that way, when I am a boss and have interns working below me, I can you know, identify with them and properly lead them. Wow, that is a fantastic answer, and I think a great like Christian perspective on what it is to, to be something lesser, to, to aspire something more. Um, we want to pray for you. Uh, also, anyone in the crowd, how many forensic accountants are there? <laughs> okay, so here's what we're going to do. Uh, we want to pray for everyone here in any sense, any capacity, whether it's vocationally or whether it's something else, where you're at a spot in your life where you aspire to something more. You aspire to something beyond where you're at now. God is a God who meets us there, and his grace is something that transforms. And so we want to just say that that's a good thing where we're called to now, even if it's a little thing, even if it feels like grunt work sometimes. It's really meaningful. How many of you would say you're in any sense of position where you aspire to something more? Raise your hand. Yeah, a lot of us. And so, uh, would you guys stand with us? Let's pray for this, that God would meet us here. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you are indeed a God of grace. You're a God who bends down to us, who does not stay in the heavens, but you come near. And you meet us where we're at. You meet us in our own brokenness, in our own sin, in the things we do that are wrong and vile and hurt people. And yet, your grace meets us there and makes us whole and does not leave us there. You are a God who transforms because your grace transforms, and we praise you for that. I thank you for Bethany. I thank you for all of those in her field in accounting and especially forensic accounting. I pray that you would do justice through her and through others in her field, that they could work with integrity and excellence. And I pray for all of those here who are aspiring to something more, who feel called to something more than where we are at right now. Would you meet us, God? Would you carry us? Would you guide us? Would you give us peace and comfort along the way, knowing that it is all for your glory? We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Today's scripture is Romans 12, 17 through 21. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as as it depends on you, Live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But let believe it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning, Redemption Tempe. My name is Jim Mullins. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is, uh, it's really good to be with you this morning. Let me say this. Um, part of my role here is to um, oversee what we do with vocational discipleship, and so I set up a lot of the All of Life interviews, and you'll see me doing the All of Life interviews quite a bit. Today, since I'm preaching, I didn't get the opportunity to do so, but Bethany's All of Life interview was the one I was looking forward to the most because isn't that awesome? A forensic accountant being really passionate and having so much vision. If a forensic accountant can figure out to have how to 
apply the gospel to her career, you can figure it out with yours as well. So I'm pretty excited about that. Well, we're going to get to dive into uh, Romans 12, verses 14, and then 17 through 21 today. If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. We have some folks who are coming down the aisle who will give you a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to keep it. And uh, go ahead and keep your hands up, and they'll get you a Bible. We're going to be talking about verses 14, and then 17 through 21. You may think that may sound, you may think that sounds weird because, you know, are we skipping 15 and 16? Are we intimidated by verse 15 and 16? Is it, is it just so complicated we can't handle it? Actually, Ricardo's going to cover the 15 and 16 next week. He's out of town this week. And we really thought that it would be appropriate to cover the verses in Romans 12 that talk about a very appropriate theme of peace and justice, and loving your enemies. Especially in the midst of this week, the 13th anniversary of 9-11. To be able to wrestle with what has been regarded by many as some of the most important, unique, ethical teaching on how to deal with an enemy, with an other, that the world has ever seen. Great peacemakers, great ethical people all draw from teaching like this, which ultimately comes from Jesus. So we're looking at verse 14. Uh, Verses 3 through 13, what they do is they are focused on the church. But then 14, Paul turns a corner and he says, now we're going to basically talk about how to deal with those outside of the church and how the church is called to relate to them, especially those who might have hostile feelings toward the church, towards God's people. And so verse 14 says this. It says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Does it sound familiar? As, as David read this passage, does it sound familiar? It should. Because essentially what Paul is doing is he's taking the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and just rephrasing it in his own words. In other words, the the church was so saturated with the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, this unique teaching that is unparalleled in all other ethics of loving your neighbor because we have a God who loves us when we were his enemies and loving our enemies because God loved us when we were his enemies. And so Paul in verse 14 is essentially rehashing that. But is this just something that Jesus brought up once and Paul brought up once? No. In many ways, the, the idea of peace the idea of loving your enemies can be seen as a central, central theme throughout Scripture. Genesis to Revelation is the story of a God who has enemies, people who rebel against him, and he loves them. And he dies for them. And he reconciles them and makes them his own. That's the story of Scripture. And it's not just that. God's name, if you look at God's business card and what his job is, it's going to say God of peace. Ten times in Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, God is called the God of peace. Over 250 times in the Old Testament, the word shalom is used, which refers to, it's the Hebrew word for peace. Furthermore, the gospel that we love, the gospel that brings us here, that reconciles us to God, is called the gospel of peace because it is fundamentally a peacemaking act from the creator of the world to make us right with him. 
Even when we look forward to Jesus in Isaiah 9, it calls him the Prince of Peace. And then when Jesus arrives in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. This idea of peace is so central to the Bible. And it's a unique type of peacemaking, a type of peacemaking that says, yes, blood may be shed, but blood is shed by the one who loves for the sake of the enemy to draw them in. John Piper says this, he says, God is a peace-loving God and a peacemaking God. The whole history of redemption, climaxing in the death and resurrection of Jesus, is God's strategy to bring about a just and lasting peace between rebel man and himself, and then between man and man. Therefore, God's children are that way too. They have the character of their father. What he loves, they love. What he pursues, they pursue. You can know his children by whether they are willing to make sacrifices for peace the way God did. In other words, people will know that you are a child of God. They'll recognize it. You're a child of the God of peace if you are able to make sacrifices for the sake of peace. Does that describe you? Does that describe you? I know it often doesn't describe me, and there was one time in my life where it definitely didn't describe me. Thirteen years ago, the week of 9-11, was my first week of community college. I was walking through the hallways at Mesa Community College, and I saw that somebody had pushed TVs in the hallway, and people were huddled around and were watching the TVs. And together, we watched the planes crash into the towers. And then I went home, and even though I had been a disciple of Jesus, a a Christian for about a year, that was the day I took a vacation from my faith, really. And I became a disciple of something else. A disciple of the television. A disciple of the media. And I began to watch a number of things about Muslims. And they shaped my mind. And and the pictures that I saw on the television shaped my perspective about who Muslims are and who they were. And I began to see them not as humans, but as enemies that must be destroyed. Now here's the thing. I was I would slander them. I said the most harsh things you could imagine about Muslims. And I was even this close to enlisting in the military for the sake of vengeance. Now, I think a military can be a good thing, but not for vengeance. I was ready to, to, to enlist if it weren't for my greater sin of laziness. Like, if I, I had... <laughs> God somehow works all things for good and use my sin of laziness to keep me out of the military. But So I didn't enlist, but I talked a big game. Until somebody came to me and said, um, some people came to me and said, Jim, you are being completely inconsistent with the gospel. You are being inconsistent with Jesus the way that you talk about Muslims. And you have two options. You either need to disassociate yourself with Jesus because you are giving him a bad name. Or repent. Repent of your own. Uh, from your hostile and unloving heart. And they brought up passages like we are reading today to lead me to repent and to see that I was wrong. And they did lead me to repent, and it actually changed the trajectory of my life. Isn't that interesting how God works? He took a former terrorist to write two-thirds of the New Testament and Paul. 
And he took me, this guy who was hostile towards Muslims, and changed the trajectory of my life. I started to befriend Muslims and to actually get to know people. Moved into ASU, uh, over by ASU, we started uh, a community. I started this community called the Moravian Community, where, where there were all kinds of believers who would live over by ASU in the international student community, would reach out to international students, build friendships, Muslims in particular, that we would share meals together, we would tell them about the God of peace that we know, and that we would ultimately have this, this, this aim of going overseas one day, and a number of us, about 20 of us, ended up going overseas. And uh, while I was overseas, part of what I was doing is, is proclaiming the gospel of peace. I lived in Turkey for three years. But also what I was doing was I started a couple of Christ-centered peacemaking organizations. One focused on photography and breaking down the stereotypes of the other. The other focused on high-level Christian-Muslim dialogue that, that would not compromise the gospel. And I met a lot of really interesting people during that time, and we did some good work. But there was one person that was the most interesting, and the conversation with him changed my life. His name was Haluk, a Turkish Muslim guy who was intrigued by Jesus and willing to read through the New Testament with me. So we would get together every week, and we would discuss what we had read. And one day, he came to me, and you could tell he didn't want to do he, he didn't want to do any chit-chat. He wanted to get right to the point. He said, Jim, some of the things that I read this week are amazing. It's some of the most beautiful ethical teaching I have ever seen. And he referred to Luke 6, the passage where it talks about loving your enemies and doing good to your enemies and giving to your enemies. And how anybody can love their friend or a family member, but to love the person who's other than you. That is truly radical. And he looked at me and he said, Jim, there are a lot of similarities between Christianity and Islam, but that right there is different. That is the, different, that is the very thing that is different about your God among all others. That it's a God that dies for his enemies and tells his people to, to love their enemies and to suffer for their enemies. He said, that is amazing, Jim, and it would change the world if people believe that. But have Christians ever heard of that? He said, Jim, if so many Christians in the United States view Muslims as their enemy, shouldn't they have to do a bunch of nice things for us? Shouldn't I just be getting packages all the time from Christians because they assume that I'm their enemy so that they're sending me brownies from the United States or something like that? He was basically calling us out, saying, uh, have Christians ever read these words? And then he looked at me. I remember we were eating uh, some pide. It's this Turkish sort of pizza. And he leaned over the pide and he said, listen, Jim, you have to go to America. You have to go back and tell Christians about Jesus and what he said. And that was the day I was commissioned by a Muslim to go tell Christians about <laughs> Jesus. So that's what I'm here to do today. I'm, I'm receiving that commission. But, but Haluk was right. He was right. The uniqueness of what we believe, the uniqueness of our God. There are many attributes of our God that are shared with other con conceptions of God. But the very thing that's unique is that our God loves his enemies, us, in this room, and died for us. 
and therefore sets an ethical pattern that his people love their enemies and die for them and suffer for them and give themselves to their enemies. That's unique among all the world. Now, before we really discuss how do we deal with enemies, we need to talk about who is my enemy. Now, I asked a lot of people this week, who do you think your enemy is? And most people said, come on, Jim, I don't have any enemies. Who do you think I am, like Batman or something? Like, uh, I'm not that guy from uh, the, the Princess Bride. My name is Diego Montoya. You killed my father. That's what we think of when we think of the, the idea of enemies and evil and those sorts of things. Most of us don't feel like we have many enemies. And if you do apply this text, the chances are you're applying it in a fairly, in a fairly individualistic way. Like, for instance, you read this text and you, you, immediately what comes to mind is the neighbor whose cat who poops in your yard or the, uh, the person at work who talks way too much or something like that. I, that's not necessarily what this passage is talking about. What this passage is actually, it's more of, of a communal text. It's talking about those who have hostility towards your community, the groups of people that have hostility towards you. So, in other words, otherness. The people who belong to a different group and that you potentially have conflict with. The way the world has framed it is that you are on one side and they are on another side. And so let me give some examples of what that otherness can look like. In this room, there are probably conservative and liberal uh, political ideologies here. And in our world, in our highly polarized world, we tend to view the political other as the enemy. And there may not be a specific person who's done something wrong to us from, a pol- from that political camp, but we have this low-grade hostility towards them and a sense that they are the bad guy. And in this room, we have people who feel those hostilities. If you don't believe me, we're in the middle of a political season. Just turn on the television and watch the nice and uplifting commercials that you see on TV. Or be on Facebook for 10 minutes, and you'll know that we've got some political tension going on in the world today. But also, there's the religious other. Uh, Many people who are part of our church are connected to ASU and feel a lot of hostility from atheists. And we also live in a very diverse... Actually, uh, the Phoenix metro area is the most religiously diverse uh, city in in the whole country, believe it or not. Hindus, Muslims, Buddhists, Christians, Mormons, Catholics. You have all of, all of these groups. And for the chance for religious tension is pretty, pretty high. And then ethnic, your, your ethnic other. Now, if you have been there in, in the history of America, there are many African-American communities who have received hostility for their ethnicity oftentimes, sadly, tragically, in the name of Jesus. And this often happens here in Arizona with the Hispanic community. When those people are followers of Christ, how do they relate to their other, to their enemy? So these, these are some of the ideas of enemy that come out. It's the other. Figure out who that group is or that individual is that you feel the tension toward that you are on the other side of a fence from, and that is your other, that is your enemy. That's who Paul is talking about here. And the amazing thing about Jesus' teaching in this passage 
is that what he does is he blends the idea of enemy and neighbor. What's amazing about Jesus is that he says, you want to know how you deal with your neighbor? You love them. You serve them. You pour yourself out for them. Yeah, but what about my enemy, Jesus? Same thing. In other words, we're to view the enemy as the neighbor, to move close to them to such a degree that we marginalize the concept of enemy, even when they're being hostile towards us, and move toward them in love and respect and honor to overcome evil with good. In other words, we are called to engage in strategic and sacrificial love because we have experienced strategic and sacrificial love in Christ. We are called to engage in strategic and sacrificial love because we have experienced the strategic and sacrificial love of Christ. Now let's look at the text. Where do we see it in the text? Verse 14 says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Immediately right out of the gates, we see a double command of blessing. He says it twice. And then he also contrasts blessing with cursing. What is blessing? What is cursing? Well, if you look at the Bible and and you look into what the concept of blessing was, blessing is essentially calling on God to bring favor, his God's favor, into someone else's life and to give physical and social and spiritual good and to bring it into their life. In other words, to call on God to make them flourish and thrive. Whereas cursing is the opposite. It's to call on God to bring pain into their life. Either way, blessing and cursing is basically the phrase of saying, God, go get them. But blessing is saying, God, go get them with your love and all the good that you have to extend to them. And that's what Paul is saying in this passage. He's saying, bless and do not curse. Have such a posture toward them in your heart that you want them to thrive in every possible way and call on God to intervene in their life with all the good that he has to give, to pour his grace and his love out on them. Not just to prove me right, but so that they flourish in every possible way to want the best for them. And then we see verse 17. This is where we get a little strategic here. Um, Verse 17 says, repay no one evil for evil. This is huge because Paul is not saying that evil doesn't exist. There are a lot of people in the world who would want to say, evil really isn't a thing. We just all misunderstand each other. And there are some substantial misunderstandings. I misunderstood who Muslims were, so on and so forth. But evil is real. There, there is evil in the world, people with evil intentions because of sinful hearts. And there is evil in the world. But Paul says, when evil is extended to you, what are you going to send back? If someone sends you evil, do you hit return to sender? Or do you put something else in the package and send it to them? We put something else. We, we send what is honorable in the sight of all. In the sight of all. To do such good to the other that it's recognized by all, not just those within the Christian community, but outside as well. Are we doing such good to the other that, that other communities that are not part of the church can recognize the good that we're doing? Now, what's interesting also about verse 17 is that he says, give thought to do. This is what I love. 
it doesn't just say feel warm feelings towards those who, who do evil towards you. No, it says give thought to do. And this is where I get the idea of strategic. I love strategy. I mean, I do. To a, to a degree that it's weird. Like, one of the most awkward things of when we first got, my, uh, first got married to my wife is she found my journals. And I have a number of journals where I write down strategies for things that I have no business doing. A business plan for a new type of gas station. I draw plays for the, the Arizona Cardinals to run in, in a game. And I just love strategy. I love strategy games, all those sorts of things. And when you think of strategy, you often don't put that together with love, do you? It's kind of a strategic love that feels kind of cold. But what is strategy? Strategy is intentionally thinking about what is the wisest and best approach to do something. To put in the the time to think about the other. A, A general in a war room thinks really hard and studies their enemy and how they can go and get their enemy and defeat their enemy. A coach thinks about how they can defeat the other team. A business thinks hard about how they, can, how they can bring in more revenue and more sales than the other business. What if we were strategic and we thought deeply about the other, but not to defeat them, but to bless them? What if we waged strategic peace on those who are most hostile towards us and have the harshest feelings towards us? That's what it's saying. But I can also be a guy who can come up with a a lot of nice plans and just glory in how nice of the plan is, but then never execute it. This passage compels us not to do that. It says, give thought to do that which is honorable in the sight of all. That it's not love until it hits our hands. It's not love until it's acted out. It's not just mushy feelings. It's not just good intentions. It must be fully played out in our life as well. And then we get to verse 20. Verse 20 is very interesting. It says that, uh, it says, when you, if your enemy is hungry, to feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. And what I see here is something that's pretty profound. It's to meet the tangible needs of the enemy, of the other. To have thought about them in such a deep way, to have empathized them in, with them in such a deep way that you know what they're going through. You know the challenges that they face. You know how they suffer, and you're going to meet those needs. If you look throughout the world and you see where there's most violence in the world, there's also tends to be the most tangible poverty and suffering. And, and violence and hostility go together with not having your basic needs met. And so much conflict could be averted and and even transformed if we were intentional about meeting the needs and putting medicine on the deep wounds of the other. Looking past the hostility that's coming towards us and looking into their heart and what they need most and strategically giving what we have to them for their good, for their healing. The other thing that's interesting about this is in order to give somebody food and give somebody something to drink, you have to be close to them. You have to be near to them. This is the pattern of the gospel. That God didn't just save us from afar, but he came near to us in the incarnation. And if you want to follow the peacemaking ways of Jesus, it's to get near to those who are your other, those who are distant from you. 
So what does that mean? It means if you are one of the folks who really has hostility towards a political other, whether it be conservative or liberal, or, or a religious other, an atheist or a Muslim, I'm not saying that you have to agree with them. I'm not saying that they're necessarily right. But what I'm saying is that you need to get near to them. You need to break bread together. You need to open your ears and listen and get so close that you see them not as an abstract other, but you see them as a neighbor, a human, someone created in the image of God and therefore has dignity and be near. Let me, let me talk a little bit about what this has looked like in my life. I'll just give you a few stories of ways that I've tried to wrestle with this before. Who knows what Al-Shabaab is? Raise your hand if you know Al-Shabaab. There's a few of you. It's a terrorist organization in Somalia. If you raise your hand, don't worry. We don't assume you're a part of that organization or, or anything like that. But I was disturbed a few years ago because Al-Shabaab is this organization that does horrible things in Somalia and has even um, been a part of planning things that would happen in the West. Now, what did they, one of their strategies is that they recruit Somalis from the West to go and join them in their fight. Dis, disenfranchised Somalis to join them and to go and fight and do some of those horrible things. They prey upon the most vulnerable people. Uh, those who struggle to have jobs and struggle to learn the language here in the West and give them meaning over, uh, over in Somalia. Now, we have ten to 20,000 Somalis in the Phoenix metro area. And so what a group of us tried to do a few years ago is we tried to think, is there a gospel-centered counterterrorism strategy? We couldn't find any drones, and we excluded that. So, but we were saying, what could we as the church do? And, and we looked at passages like this, and we were compelled to come near and to love. So a number of us actually moved out of our homes. I was living in Chandler at the time, and I moved into the, uh, the Somali neighborhood over by where most of the Somalis live. And we said, we're going to get near. We're going to go knock on doors. We're going to go... Uh, share meals. We're going to awkwardly call up every Somali organization and ask if we can have coffee. And, and we did, and we began to build friendships. And then eventually what they said to us was that we have a hard time. We struggle in America because we don't understand language and culture. Uh, it's hard to get a job uh, and those, those sorts of things. And it, it's just hard to be here. Would you help us by getting some of the people from your church to help teach English and citizenship class and do some job skills training? And we, we did that for a number of years, and we still have some of that going on today with Arcadia and some of Redemption Tempe. Um, Emily Campbell was one of the people who was a part of that. She's since moved to Seattle, but she's back specifically for, t- for today, so I'm honoring her right now. But we, we started teaching English. And we built deep friendships with them to the degree that so many of the conversations we had with them, they said, you've changed my perception of what a Christian is. You've changed my perception of the type of people that are here in America. We are friends now. Now, let me ask you this. If a radical uh, Al-Shabaab preacher came to them and tried to recruit them for a terrorist attack in America, would they be a part of it? No. 
because they would see my face and Emily's face and the face of people of Redemption Tempe and of Redemption Arcadia. That is a gospel counterterrorism strategy to move towards the most vulnerable that could be picked off by some of the most evil people and to love them and to preempt something really horrible. Another example of that is a few years ago, I was invited to um, this fellowship at Yale. Um, how I got into it, I have no idea. Like, they, they must have saw my GED from Chandler uh, Public Library and were very impressed. But somehow I snuck into this thing and they thought I knew something about something. Um, and it was, a, it was a fellowship that was focused on dealing with issues of conflict and, and leadership amidst conflict. And I was there, and one of my goals was to network with some of the big wigs that were there and get to know them and, you know, and exchange business cards and work together with them. But I noticed that in some of our small group breakout sessions, there was a girl there who was about my age who wouldn't say a word. It seemed like she was staring at me the whole time. She teared up sometimes, and when people asked her a question, she refrained from answering And then about the second day, she basically said that she felt uncomfortable with my presence in the room. And she felt uncomfortable answering and saying anything with me being in that room. Why? Because she had been abused by a pastor when she was younger. And then then she uh, came out as gay. And her parents and, and the pastor and some of the people did some of the most horrible things that I wouldn't even feel comfortable uh, saying in a service to honor her today. But they did horrible things in the name of Jesus. And she was so hurt by it that she couldn't even be in the same room as me. There was hostility there. She was a gay rights activist and, and those sorts of things. And here I am as, as a pastor. And it struck me that if I'm going to take Jesus seriously... My time at Yale as part of this fellowship was not about me building some relationship with some leader that can make me feel important about myself. But I had one job, and that was to befriend her. So we, we shared some meals together. She took a lot of courage for her to accept my invitation to share a meal together. And we began to talk and hear each other's story. And we began to really sort of build a friendship Now, we disagreed with each other, but now we were able to at least disagree with each other, disagree with a face and a person rather than some abstract idea of a pastor or a gay rights activist. And one day we decided, uh, we all went out to eat. There was a number of us, about 20 of us that went out to eat. And I said, I need to do something to communicate to her that she is my friend and we are on the uh, the same team in, in, in a lot of things, in humanity, I suppose. And so, and, and just, you know, communicate love and respect to her. So I, I, I do this thing from time to time where I go to a restaurant and I pay for somebody randomly and anonymously. I pulled her aside and I said, let's organize um, our whole table to pay for someone else in the restaurant. And our whole table ended up paying for every single meal in the restaurant. It was awesome. And there was so much joy in that restaurant. Like people were surprised that their kebabs were being paid for. And they were really, really happy. And, and our, our table felt a ton of happiness and everything. And at the end of the day, the group was like, was astonished that a gay rights activist and a pastor 
organized something for a whole restaurant to just be happy. Usually there's not a lot of happiness when a gay rights uh, activist and a pastor come together. But it was a cool thing, and it broke down some of the hostility that was there. And I really knew her her better, and she knows me better. To this day, we have not budged on our opinions. I still believe in a biblical view of sexuality, and, and she's still a gay rights activist, but we are friends. And this is what the gospel compels us to do, to take the title of enemy and say, no, that I don't accept that title. This person will become my friend, will become my neighbor. I'll move close to them because Christ moved close to me. What does that look like for you? Get that person in your mind, get that group in your mind, and begin thinking about what it looks like to tangibly bless them and to move closer to them. Now, I understand that you probably have some objections or at least some questions to what I'm saying because Jesus' teaching is unparalleled and unique and pretty radical, to be honest. So I'm going to answer some of those objections. One objection would be, okay, Jim, how far do we take it? Should police officers be turning the other cheek? Should, should we dismantle the military? Is this passage essentially calling for pacifism? And I don't believe that's the case. I believe that what this is talking about is the institution of the church and how the church should respond. In a few weeks, we're going to look at Romans 13, and we're going to talk about the institution of the government and what is the role of the government. And we'll see that there are two separate institutions that the government does use force. It bears the sword to bring about retributive justice. For those who've done wrong and evil, the government restrains that evil with force. But the church has a different role with justice. We are about restorative justice, where we take the enemy and we love the enemy and serve the enemy tangibly in such a way that it draws them to repentance and reconciliation. It restores their place back in the community. It overcomes evil with good. Now, can the church, can, the, the government, can people from the government be a part of the church? And can the church uh, be in government? I do think so. I think there are people from the church that can work in government. And if someone from the government shows up here and wants to be a part of the church, let them in. It's good. But the institutions are different. The, the police, we don't want them to turn their cheek. We want them to catch the person who's robbed the store. But also the church is different in that we don't have a jail here at the church. We're a different institution. We don't have a, a police force. Despite what you may think uh, by Facebook, we're not out to like go arrest people and beat them up. So we have a different institution. Number two, the question is, what if I've been abused by somebody? What if I'm in danger? What if I've been raped? Does that mean that I have to go spend a bunch of time with this person? That I have to be nice to this person now? Now, I think the teaching of the Bible is very, very clear that for your sake and the other person's sake, it's important to forgive. It's important to forgive. It's important to, to love and to work through those feelings of anger. But I do not think it's always wise for that person to spend a lot of time with the perpetrator, the rapist, uh, the, the, the rape victim with the rapist the person who is sexually abused with the sexual abuser. I don't think that's often wise. I think you often, the most loving thing to do is to have some distance. But what's important to note is that this passage 
is a passage, a command to the church. The church as a whole, as a people. So while a particular person shouldn't spend time with the pedophile, or a particular person shouldn't spend time with the rapist, as scandalous as it sounds, the church should. We as a body should move towards the people who've even done the most heinous, evil things. I don't think our children's ministry should, should be the one leading that. But I do know that there are people in this church, single men, who can put down a video game and to take this radical teaching seriously, to look on the sex offender registry and to send birthday cards, to use that as a prayer list, and to overcome evil with good. There are some hurting people who are on that list whose lives can be transformed by the love of God. And I'm in particular challenging the single men of the church to do, to do just that. But number three, uh, what if they don't respond to my peacemaking efforts? In other words, what if Jesus' strategy doesn't work? What if we do a bunch of good stuff to them and they give me the middle finger, basically? What if I, uh, if I, if I, um, if I send uh, a cake over to their house and they throw the cake in my face, basically? What if they continue to respond with even more evil and more hostility? Well, verse 18 says, If possible... So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, this is really interesting because Paul is not guaranteeing success. He's not saying there will always be peace. But as far as it depends on you, focus on yourself, live peaceably with all. Deal with the issues of your heart. Deal with your anger. Deal with how you respond. When you look at the mirror, you are seeing the person that God is calling to love and to peace. The other person may not respond, but it says, as far as it depends on you, if possible, live peaceably with all. In other words, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, not necessarily the peace achievers, right? But I think that this is important. It's important because the whole, Paul changes the orientation that we tend to have. We tend to be oriented toward the other and seeing the wrong that they've done. And he says, instead of holding up a scope and taking aim at them, hold up a mirror and look at yourself. Deal with your own stuff. Can you imagine how that would change the world? If we took Jesus seriously and we saw our own sin as a giant log and the other people's sin as a little speck? That would change so many issues of conflict. But we tend to act as if we've never sinned or if our sin is this small and everyone else's is gigantic. And the reality is we need to focus on our own stuff. And if we did that, I think it would have changed a lot of horrible things that have happened in history in the name of Jesus. Unspeakable amounts of good things have happened, but horrible things have happened as well. Uh, obvious ones like the Crusades, uh, slavery, things like that. Even the horrible things that have happened in this very state towards native peoples. And how would it change us? How would it have changed those situations if people would have looked at their own sinful hearts rather than than only focusing on the other? Because here's the deal. Just because we are Christians doesn't mean that we're always right. We are capable of tremendous evil, and we've got to be humbled by the gospel in every situation. 
Sometimes, sometimes, now hear me out, I believe that Islam is not the way to God. I believe Muslims need Jesus to rescue them from their sins. But I also know that sometimes Muslims need Jesus to rescue them from some of his followers, from some of the hostile things that we've done. And he does it by calling us to look at our own hearts. I don't believe that homosexuality is is God's way of, of expressing sexuality and that it's right. And I believe it's a sin. And that that sin needs to be paid for by Jesus. But I also believe that there are gay people out there who felt tremendous pain and need to be rescued by Jesus from some of his followers and the hostile things that we've done in their name. Think about how the gospel humbles us and how it shapes our relationships with the other. How it would give us a generous and humble posture towards the atheist if we really paid attention to all of the idols that we made and all the times that we acted as if God isn't real. To look at yourself changes your posture toward the other. And now I want to just answer the final objection that I think people probably are thinking about. And it's this. Is this really just... If you do a bunch of good things to those who are hostile towards you and have actually done some really wrong things towards you, doesn't that just encourage bad behavior? Does justice really happen? And that's when I think we get to this whole bit about coals. But before I explain what he means about heaping coals on, his head, on the head of the enemy, I want to talk. Uh, just remind us of the nature and the pattern of the gospel. Romans 5, 8 and 9. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more we shall be saved by him from the wrath of God. So first of all, before we start talking about hot coals, remember that while we were enemies of God, God melted our sinful hearts through the love of Christ and justified us. And what Jesus does is he, he allows for peace and justice to come together in the midst of a hostile situation. And if peace and justice are able to come together, they only come together through one thing, and that's through suffering. Someone has to absorb the pain of the situation, and Jesus absorbs our pain, allowing us to be justified and for justice to happen and therefore to be, for there to be peace with God. And that's what he calls us to do in the world, to go and absorb the pain of the conflict so that peace and justice can come together. But he makes very clear that vengeance is an issue. It is something that will come, but it doesn't come through us. Vengeance is the sole property of God. Romans twelve nineteen through, through 21 says, Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written... Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now that seems a little strange, doesn't it? It's talking about all this love and peacemaking stuff, and then it's like, go throw some hot coals on their head. But let me tell you what I think that means. There's two plausible interpretations. One is there was this ancient Egyptian practice, and I love this image. 
that when people had done something wrong and they had sinned, they would carry a plate of hot coals on their head as they walked through the city as a, as a sign of contrition to say, I have done something wrong and I am sorry to the community. And the idea here is that each act of good is like putting another hot coal on their head and, and causing them to see the wrong that they've done, to melt under their, under their sin and to show that I am wrong and to respond with repentance. But another interpretation, and I think this is just as plausible and actually probably more probable, to be honest with you, is that the severity of their judgment increases as they rebuff our love with more evil. That God sees and God is the God of vengeance who will, they will have to stand before one day. Now that may feel uncomfortable to a highly educated, fairly wealthy Western context in the 21st century. That may not be, feel very fashionable, a God of vengeance. Let's not talk about a God of vengeance. Let's just let's talk about the God of love. But the God of love and the God of vengeance is the same thing. You know who understands that? The people who've suffered most in the world. Because the rapist or the rape victim needs to know that the rapist will have to stand before God one day. And that frees her up to actually leave vengeance to God and to love her enemy and to love her neighbor. The Yazidis in Iraq who were terrorized by ISIS need to know, they need to know that even though they are powerless, that ISIS will have to stand before God one day who will make things right and who will bring about judgment and that the hot coals will come on their head. And that if they don't repent, because let me make no mistake, Christ takes the hot coals for all of us if we'll repent. But if they don't repent, they don't just get off scot-free. They've got to face a God who sees the most unjust things that happen. And if we really believe that, we are freed up to love, to bless, to tangibly serve, and to not have to have retribution knowing that God has it taken care of. So let me just close by asking, what would it look like for us to apply this? Let me start by just saying something really radical here. I, first of all, I can't stand radical for radical's sake, but radical for the gospel. This is radical, this teaching here. But I have a friend named Jeremy Courtney who heard a passage like this in the midst of the Iraq war, and he said, I'm going to Iraq. And he went there, and he looked around, and he saw the needs, and he saw that so many children struggled with heart defects. And he began to to devise ways, to strategically plan ways that he could meet those needs. And so he brought doctors in and he sold Curtis shoes in America. And to this day, his organization, Preemptive Love, has funded hundreds of heart surgeries and provided hundreds of heart surgeries in Iraq. And we'll be able to ask questions to him. He's going to come out for first Wednesday in a couple months. But they were able to do so much good and I saw the ways that people responded. People who were hostile towards Christians said, that guy loves, he is my friend. Hostile towards Americans said, that guy loves, he is my friend. And people who were former insurgents repented and started joining him in providing for heart surgeries. What if we followed his example of preemptive love? What if we said there will be no Refugee, especially from the Middle East, especially from Iraq, who comes to America without being greeted by someone who loves them from this church? What if there would be no international student 
who came here and didn't have a home to stay in in one of our homes? What if every time we heard about ISIS, we prayed instead of posted on Facebook? Believe it or not, President Obama and ISIS, they're not looking at your Facebook page and looking for advice. But God is looking at your Facebook page. And he's looking at your heart and in your prayers toward them. Then finally, what if, take this seriously now, what if some of you went to Iraq, potentially putting yourself in harm's way to figure out how you could love your global Iraqi neighbor? If that's you, I will help you get there. But what if you're not going to go to Iraq? I got another option for you. Because <laughs> I, I don't think we'll have, uh, I don't think the church will be empty next week because people went to Iraq. Um, very specifically, I want you to picture who that person is or who that group is that defines otherness for you. That's your enemy that you need to have as your neighbor. And take your eyes and intentionally figure out ways that you can see them as an image bearer of God. That you can see them as someone created in God's image. Get close enough to see. Take your ears and get close enough to where you can listen and ask questions about their life. And hear their story and hear uh, the challenges that they face. Their needs, their wants, their dreams. And use your ears in preemptive love. Take your mouth And speak words of blessing and kindness and gratitude to them. And speak the good news. And proclaim and call on God to bless them. And then take your hands and actually be a conduit of the blessing that God is extending to them through you. Because he has blessed you. He has loved you when you were his enemy. He has served you when you were running away from him. And when we were distant, he came near. We love our enemy until they become our neighbor because God loved us when we were his enemies. Let's pray. God, we we recognize that, that this teaching is challenging. And it is some of the most unique ethical teaching. And it flows from the one and only unique God. Help us first and foremost be overwhelmed with gratitude for the sacrificial ways with which you loved us, that you gave all of yourself to us. And because you gave all of yourself to us, show us how we can give the fullness of ourselves to others in love and in service, those who might be quite different from us. God, I pray for each person in here that we would have someone specific that you bring to mind or a specific group that you bring to mind that you are calling us and compelling us uh, to love sacrificially and strategically. And we thank you that we've known that in Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.